deciding to come to Horizon, we had just moved back to Cincinnati from Florida, and then I had some anxiety about finding a new church home and how much homework we would have to do and visiting and things like that. And before even talking through it with Spencer, and then um, so I eventually brought it up, and little did I know, he said, "Oh, we'll we'll be going to Horizon." <laughs> so, as a kid, I believe I was part of the very first Horizon service. So I remember going to Indian Hill High School, moving through the the youth group to Country Day. And I think when I had left for college, you guys were maybe a year or two away from moving into this building. So we had been attending the church for you know several months as a family. And then um, it had been on our hearts about the, dedica- the child dedication. And we saw some um, messages about that. And we did decide to dedicate both of our girls here um, just recently in the fall of 2022. So for the child dedication, one of the um, homework assignments, right, was to um, imagine um, a conversation with your children later in life and, um, you know, what that would look like, our relationship with them, um, our relationship together, and really um, where they would be with providing the foundation here with, um, with them at Horizon. And so through that homework assignment, you know, we we sat down a couple of different times to actually really think about what what are some things we would say, what would that look like for us, and just how important it was that you were here as a kid, and now they are here, and that was something that was really important and special to us. You know, laying the groundwork so as an adult you feel more comfortable, you know, coming back to the church, especially when you do have children and you're thinking about okay, well, what kind of values do we want our kids to have and what kind of community do we want them to grow up in? Um, And Horizon is a place that I've always felt comfortable with. No one tried to ever put you in a box and say, there's only one way to do things. Um, But the other thing is even the sermons, you know, Ashley and I joke that it's not like uh, maybe some of the TV pastors you see where they're telling you exactly what they think and what they think is right. It's more of a, you know, the sermons are about, hey, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says about itself, right? And it's a sort of scholarly approach and letting God and Bible define itself as opposed to, you know, whatever the preacher's opinion is. I mean, I love hearing that story because you just hear all of our values as a church. Comfortable environment, relevance, you hear challenging Bible teaching, everybody helps out. But I think what I loved about hearing their story is to hear also the generational impact of those who invested and served way back in Indian Hill days before we got the CCD and here. And to think about what we are part of here is building a place where generations are being transformed if you've never been to one of our child dedications to it is so amazing the way in which our children's program leads each one of the families to write those letters about their kids and to leave a spiritual legacy. It's just amazing. And I don't know about you, but I'm humbled to be part of it. And that last part was really nice that he said too. Clearly he was talking about Drew, about that scholarly stuff. But um, <laughs> I do think that we aspire to be the best Bible teaching you'll find in the world. That's what we aspire to do each week. And to really take these scriptures and bring them to life the way God and the Holy Spirit intended. 
And we're certainly going to find that today. And today, before I dive into it, um, let me give you a principle that you know is true. You felt it every time you watched a movie and every time you wrote a book. And every time you read a book, a good novel, or watched a good movie, you wanted to make sure that there was a death worthy of the evil committed. Now you know this, from James Bond to, to Jason Bourne to John Rambo, the henchmen, they don't do a lot of evil, so you can just kind of punch them and they're out. You can kind of shoot them and they're gone. But the main bad guy, ho, 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 the main bad guy, he needs a death worthy of all the evil he's committed in the whole movie, right? And then at the end of the movie, you're like, yes, got him, about time justice was served. Well, you have to have that feeling when you go into this text today. One of the most ridiculous examples of this was a Jerry Bruckheimer movie in 1997 where the main bad guy is Cyrus the Virus. He's a rapist, pedophile, murderer, and he's on this con air, the name of the movie. And all these prisoners are escaping, and they crash land the plane into, into Las Vegas. And then Cyrus the Virus is being chased by, by a horrible southern accent of, of Nicolas Cage. And the bad guy is on the back of this fire truck on this ladder. And you're like, yes, we got to get the bad guy, Cyrus the Virus. And they ram him on the ladder onto a bridge. Boom, yes, a bad guy. And he falls down, hits some electrical lines. And then they electrocute him on the way down. And then he lands onto a conveyor belt in an auto recycling yard that happened to be under the bridge, under the electrical lines, where he lands onto a conveyor belt where his body is taken up. Oh, no, oh, no, and he falls backwards into a trash compactor. Yes, Jerry, that's the kind of death Cyrus the virus deserves. And today we are going to find that that same thing is true today. We're going to look at the four tombstones. Number one. Ahaziah has been doing evil in the kingdom for many, many years. And finally, his death will come. Jezebel, the wicked witch of the West, for generations her name has been synonymous with evil. And her tombstone will be found in today's passage. Ahab's sons, 70 of them, going back two generations to their evil grandfather Omri, they will finally meet their match. And lastly, the prophets of Baal who've been killing off generations of little babies, telling the Israelites to take their children and put them onto these Baal statues that are bronze, heated up, so they are burning hot, and they put their live children on the hands of this, this idol and literally watch their children melt and burn and scream. That's what's been going on. And you won't understand the death they will have Unless you understand the evil that each one of these people have done. And my hope today is that if you are struggling with whether or not God is finally going to bring about justice, we can learn to trust God for his justice. And if you've got things in your life that are not synced up with God, and we all do, you're also going to see God's mercy in all the time he gave each one of them to get in sync before that death came. Our first tombstone goes to Ahaziah. So we're picking up where we were last week. Remember last week, there's a new king in town. A new king's name is Jehu. And Jehu has been anointed by God to the north in Israel, and he is coming against the king of the south to finally deal with him. Now he's already had some mercy already. He saw Jehu killed the previous king of the north just minutes ago in our passage last week. 
And now Ahaziah has a chance. Does he repent? Does he turn back to God? Does he say, oh my goodness, I so awful, out of whack. No. No repentance at all. It says, when Ahaziah, king of Judah, this is the king of the south, saw this, that, Jerob, Jero, Jero, <laughs> that Jehoram had been killed by Jehu, that was the king from last week, he fled by the road. Doesn't repent, doesn't say, you're right, I need to get right. He flees to Beth Hadad, or, or Hagen. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot, just like he shot the other guy. Shoot him. They shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Eblim. So now he's been shot. The last guy that got shot died. This is now his last chance to repent. I'm facing my own mortality. Will I turn to God? He doesn't. He flees to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem. Let me show you his path and just show you how much borrowed time God gave him. They start up just south of the Sea of Galilee. They head south to the area where, they had, where we learned last week that Jezebel had stolen that vineyard from Nabal. They take a sharp right turn, and that's when he heads up to Megiddo. And here he's in Megiddo. Let me show you what Megiddo looks like. This section of Megiddo, as it came around here, Jehu came around, the circle there, that's the location that Naboth was. They stole that vineyard from him, that poor guy. And then that's where Joram gets killed. They head south. Again, he's got all that time, south, all that time to the north to repent, to change. He realizes he's been shot. Oh, my goodness, my last chance. But he doesn't change. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn back to God. And he ends up on this tell of Megiddo. Let me show you the tell of Megiddo. There it is. And this spot, he dies. And passes away. Because he did not make the best of his borrowed time. And he will die here in this location at Megiddo. And then they will take his body. The scripture continues and it says they take him to Jerusalem where he's buried in the tomb of all the kings. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab of the north, Ahaziah had become king over Judah, and now he's died. And I think his tombstone would say he didn't make use of his borrowed time. See, for years, he's had a bullseye on his back. He's been continuing to rebel against God and push against God and not need God and do things God told him not to do. And if there's a lesson from Ahaziah's life, it's that if I don't take the bullseye off my back, if I don't, stop rebelling, stop resisting, stop pushing against God's plan and God's will and, and God's commands, I'm eventually going to catch an arrow when I got a bullseye on my back. How often has God given you time to change, to repent, to see habits that your parents brought up to you and then your spouse brought up to you and now your kids bring up to you and you just didn't take it seriously? Take advantage of your borrowed time. Now I move to Jezebel. If Jezebel's tombstone said one thing, it would say, Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. 
Her name is so synonymous with evil that even in the New Testament, they refer to her name as a spiritual um, evil spirit, the spirit of Jezebel of control and division and destruction. Jezebel, besides killing off Naboth for his vineyard, she's killed off the prophets of God. She's killed off anyone who even tried to lean in God's direction. And she's been doing it her entire life. And she hears, she also has borrowed time. Let me take you back to 1 Kings for a moment. In 1 Kings, before Elisha was Elijah. And here's what Elijah had warned her. Remember, he passed away. That's a long time ago. Thus says the Lord, Elijah, to Jezebel, in this place that you just stole the land from Naboth, where dogs lick the blood of Naboth when you killed him, the dogs are going to lick your blood, even yours. I found you out. You're not getting away with this. You have sold yourself into evil. That's not making a few mistakes. The evil she has committed, she sold herself to evil. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, the dogs will eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city. The birds of the air will eat whoever dies in the field. Now, when were these words spoken by Elijah? Let me show you a timeline. Elijah warns her in 875 B.C. That's that warning I just read. Elijah dies at 849 B.C. Jezebel won't die until 841. See, when you see her death today, don't miss out on the mercy. She's had all that time to repent. And she sold herself to evil. And even in the last couple paragraphs, she saw Jehu take out the evil predecessor, one of her sons. She's now seen him take out Ahaziah. In fact, if a Jehu killed his predecessor right in this location, then chased Ahaziah to Megiddo, then he's come right back here. She's had time. Last chance to repent. And instead, she hears that Jehu has arrived. And as Jehu comes back, to the capital city that she is at, here's how she responds. When Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it. And her instinct was to put on eye makeup. She wants to look good for her death. So she pulled out her cosmetics. This is the cosmetics archaeologists have found about that time period. That's what she pulls out. She starts to decorate her eyes, adorn her head, to look good as she peers out the window to see death coming her way. Now, some commentators thought maybe she's going to try and seduce him. As you're going to see, she is not trying to seduce him. She is as belligerent and obstinate as she's ever been. Now, archaeologists have also found that the kind of buildings that were found in these type of uh, city gates were two stories. So picture this idea here, a six-chambered city gate. She's up on the second floor looking out the window. She's dressed up really nice for her, her, her untimely death because her whole life has been about the outside dressing up. 
power, dressing up with control, seducing people with her beauty. Her whole life has been about the outside and hiding the ugly inside of evil and corruption that is within her. Unless we throw too many stones, how often are we so quick to dress up rather than confess up? Jehu comes to the city gates. He looks up. And as Jehu entered the gate, Jehu looks down at him and says, Is it peace? You've come in peace, Zimri, murderer of your master. Like, that's her best insult? That's a pretty good insult, actually. Why in the world is she calling Jehu Zimri? Because <laughs> Jehu from the north. And back in 1 Kings, there was another guy who assassinated the king, a commander just like him. And his name was Zimri. And he took control of the kingdom away from his boss, the master, the king. And Zimri, you know how long his reign lasted? Seven days. So she's saying, oh, you think you're going to get away with this? No way. You're just like Zimri. You killed off their master, and they're going to come and kill off you in seven days just like him. He, Jehu, looks up at the window and said, hey, anybody else up there? Is anybody up there on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs on the second floor look down at him. He looks at the eunuchs and says, throw her down. They've been waiting for this command from a king for a long, long time. Here come these eunuchs with as much glee as you can imagine. And it says that as she tumbles down from that second story, they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the wall and down on the horses. And Jehu brings his horse over and tramples her body into the ground. And then he decides to have a party. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. He decides to go in to the city and have some dinner. He went in, he ate, and he drank. He finished eating, celebrating that finally all the people who she had killed, all the innocents she had destroyed, finally this reign of terror is over. And then he decides, hey, she is a king's daughter. We should give her a royal burial, I guess. <laughs> Go now and see this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her. And they can't even find her body. All they can find are her feet and her palms and her skull. And here's the irony, satirical irony here. A woman who lived her whole life hiding her insides. And now her insides are on the outside. She's dying the way she should have lived. More focused on what's on the inside than hiding them on the outside. And because they can't find her body, it is fulfilled exactly what Elijah had said so many years ago when he had warned him. Therefore, they came back and told him. And he said, well, that's what God said would happen. This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of the ground of Jezreel, dogs will eat the flesh of Jezreel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be his refuge on the surface of the field. 
So here it says on that plot, the same place she stole the land from Naboth, here lies Jezebel. Her tombstone. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. So two applications here. First application is if you're Israel, and many of us feel like Israel, there is some injustice going on around us in the world There's injustice going on because you have seen somebody hurt you, somebody wound you, somebody do something that has just punished the good or or rewarded the evil, and it is driving you crazy. You are angry. You are torn up inside because Jezebel has been able to go on for so long. Why isn't God stopping it? Why doesn't God do something about this? And the application to us, and we all feel that at times, is it's not my timing, but I can trust God's word to be fair, to be full, and to be final. But it's rarely fast. God's rarely just at the time I want him to be just. Eli Wiesel is a guy who won the Nobel Prize for bringing peace into the world. But he tells a story about being in a Nazi Holocaust camp. And he and his fellow Jews decided to put God on trial for not protecting them, for not looking out for them, and for allowing the Nazis to to continue in their evil. He says, we put God on trial, and after we weighed the evidence, we declared God guilty. Guilty. And then he said, and then we got up and went about our daily prayers. We don't understand what he's doing now. We don't think he's keeping his promises But we know eventually he will. He's still our God. He's still the one we trust. That's why I think this verse in Peter is helpful to understand. Why does God let evil go on so long in the world and in your life and in mine? Well, see, the Lord's not slack concerning his promises to bring about justice. But he is so long-suffering, patient with us. Why is he so patient? Because he doesn't want anyone, even Jezebel, to perish He wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants Ahaziah to come to repentance and Jezebel, but eventually your borrowed time is up. And we've seen generations, years, years, last chance, last chance, last chance. Now what's the application we get from Jezebel? I think if we stop throwing stones at her for a moment and say, well, how often do I dress up rather than confess up? And all the time. I remember when I was in my church in Atlanta for the first time, I'd ever seen anything like this. There's a couple who just come to Christ at our church, Steve and Elizabeth. And they got up to talk about over the last two years, they had come to know Jesus. They had asked him for forgiveness for the the terrible things they had done. And they wanted to tell us as as a church body what they had done and what God was doing in them. See, he had been married before Steve had. And he ended up training with this woman named Elizabeth. And eventually he starts having an emotional affair and then a physical affair with Elizabeth and eventually he leaves his wife for Elizabeth. Both weren't Christians at the time and he just kind of left his wife behind and all the the damage and and, and unfaithfulness and, and, and not keeping his word and all those things that happen. And then he and his new wife, his trainer, came to know Jesus. And they began to see the evil of what they had done. They destroyed a life, destroyed something God had called holy. And he began to see how 
tragic he had done. She had, his wife had since got remarried, but he began to see how bad it was what he did. And he went back. He said, listen, I am so sorry. I'm realizing how selfish I was. I'm realizing now how I betrayed you and betrayed your trust. I'm learning I need God's forgiveness. And to see two people, <laughs> not dressing up to look really good, but to confess up to how out of alignment they were and to say that publicly. And I'm not saying it's always appropriate to say it publicly, but I was just struck by the honesty. I found myself last couple times I've been going to lunch with folks just trying to, more than normal, and I feel like I'm always trying to be pretty open, but even more than normal, talk about my insecurities with people and talk about my, my, my temptations with people and talk about the things I'm wrestling with. Because I don't want to even start on the path of dressing up rather than confessing up. Which brings us to our third. And now the story gets more bizarre. In fact, it only gets more violent from here. And so now we have Ahab's sons. And there's 70 of them. And these 70 sons have been continuing to wreak havoc since their grandpa's days. And here Jehu is going to now clean out all of the current evil and future evil of this entire generation of Ahab's legacy. And that's where we pick up here. And what we're going to find here, on their tombstone, it would say, they lived by the sword, killing people off. They're now going to die by the sword. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, the leaders of Jezebel, to the elders, and to those who were rearing Ahab's sons. He says, now as soon as this letter comes to you, since the master's sons are with you, you have chariots and horses and a fortified city also in weapons. Choose your best qualified of your master's sons. Set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. So what's going on here? He's declaring war. He's saying, listen, you guys know I just took over. I'm giving you a chance in the city, the capital city, to pick one of the sons to become the new king, and we'll fight it out, and we'll see who ends up being the king. So it's a declaration of war to the city councilmen and the leaders there. <laughs> and I love their response. But they were exceedingly afraid. They said, look, even if we got two of these sons, and they made them both king, they couldn't stand up to Jehu. Who could stand? And he who was in charge of the house and he who was in charge of the city, all the elders, responded to Jehu and those who'd reared the sons. And he said to Jehu, hey, Jehu, we're your servants. <laughs> we're not going to pick a new king. We'll let you be king. We will do what you tell us to do. We will not make anyone else king. Do what is good in your sight. Then he wrote a second letter to them and said, okay, if you are for me, obey my voice. Take the heads of the men, your master's son, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with great men of the city who were rearing them. And already we begin to say, wait a second, this is starting to move beyond just God's justice. He says, I want you to behead them. Take off their heads and put them in a basket. And as this passage begins to unwind, you start finding out that Jehu, though he's doing God's justice, killing them off, we're starting to see more like revenge than justice. We're starting to see the way he's going about it shows there's something deeply broken in this king as well. So they bring a basket filled with the heads of Ahab's sons. So it was that the letter came to them, and they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons 
and put their heads in a basket. And they sent them up to Jezreel. Then a messenger came and said, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. He said, Well, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate this morning. So Jehu has got asked them to do this, asked them to set it here, and now all the people show up that morning. Holy cow, oh my goodness, the heads of all Ahab's sons. So it was in the morning that he went out and stood. So Jehu stands out there to see the heads when all the people gather around, just like he told them to do, and watch how he plays dumb. Watch how he lies. In the morning, he went out and stood and said to all the people, well, you people are all righteous. Indeed, I did conspire to kill my master because he was evil. I did kill the previous king. It was the right thing to do. But shocker, who killed these people? You did, Jehu. And you're starting to see his revenge. You're starting to see his deception. You're starting to see him playing a politician. And then his speech continues. Now know that nothing shall fall to the ground of the earth except for what the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. And that's why you have this intermixing of, yes, God said this should happen. Yes, God said this would happen. And yet we're also seeing some deception and some mutilation and things that wouldn't have been God's will mixed together here. So Jehu then now moves far beyond justice of just killing off Ahab's sons. Now he kills off all who remained in the house of Ahab and Jezreel and all his great men and his close acquaintances. God didn't say to kill all those and all of his priests until he left him none remaining. Now we see him moving well beyond justice into revenge. And keep in mind, he is the king, he is the government, he's the institutor of justice but he's moving well beyond this into personal revenge. Meanwhile, watch how he spiritualizes this. He arose and departed and went to Samaria. On the way at, at Beth Eckert of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, the king of Judah. So totally unrelated, his brothers, that guy over there. He says, hey, who are you guys? He said, oh, take him alive. So they took him alive. And they killed them at the well of Beth Eckert, 42 men. He left none of them well beyond what God told him to do. He just likes killing people. So when he departed from there, he met Jehanadab, the, the son of Recheb, according, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said, Oh, is your heart right? Oh, my heart is right towards you. And Jehodab said, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me a hand. So he, he gave him his hand and he took him up into his chariots. He said, Come with me, see my zeal for the Lord. And now he thinks everything he does, God has ordained him to do. And you see him spiritualizing his compromises. So they had him ride in the chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he destroyed them. So now he's back to the Ahab, but it seems to be beyond just the sons. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. So you got this mix of him doing the things God told him to do and these other things he's added on to it. And it's all kind of mixed together here in the passage. So then Jehu gathers all the people together and said to them, now let's talk about Baal. Now this is more deception, but it's pretty clever as a war tactic. Ahab's, Jehu says, Ahab served Baal a little bit, but Jehu is going to serve him a whole lot. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal 
and all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu was acting deceptively with the intent of destroying all the worshipers of Baal. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. So let's just talk about Jehu for a second. Am I taking revenge or am I trusting God to be the fair, full, and final justice? See, in the book of Romans, it says that governments are set up with the sword to take care of evildoers. But it says, on personal ethics go, beloved, do not avenge yourself. Rather, give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay. Now, in this case, it's a little bit confusing only because Jehu is the government. But he's moving well beyond government justice. He's moved into personal revenge and spiritualizing it. Have you moved beyond holy anger to revenge? Have you found these revenge fantasies are holding you back and keeping you from, from freedom? keeping you from finding the, the, the grace and the idea that somebody made mistakes, but you could have done the same thing because you have the same tendency in you. Be very careful with revenge. And we just saw how he set up the, the stage for, for the last tombstone, but let's see how it ends. See, the last tombstone would probably say they lived by the sword and they died by the sword because that's exactly what Baal's prophets have been killing off children as a sacrifice to Baal. So Jehu's irony here is he's going to give Baal the ultimate sacrifice. All of those who've killed all those children and all those people all those years. So Jehu said, let's proclaim a solemn assembly to Baal. And they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all of Israel, I want to see every single worshiper of Baal. So there was not a man left anywhere in the nation who didn't come. And they crammed them all into into the temple of Baal. And the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. Let's make sure everybody who worships Baal is wearing the same thing. Dun, 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 dun. He brought out the vestments. Everybody put on your Baal robe. We got to make sure we know who loves Baal. Oh, good. And he put on my Baal robe. Then Jehu, Jehonadab, the son of Rechab went into the temple of Baal and they said, all right, let's check one time. Search and see. Any servants of the Lord here? We only want servants of Baal here. Imagine if you are a servant of the Lord. You're like, man, if I raise my hand, I'm going to get killed. But this is your last chance to take a stand for God. But this is also your last chance of escape. Stand up for God even under pressure. No one raises their hand. Everyone says, oh, no, we love Baal here. He's like, all right. Everybody here loves Baal. Good to hear it. Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here, but only the worshipers of Baal. So they went in to offer their burnt offerings to Baal. Jehu goes outside and appointed for himself 80 men on the outside. He said, if any of the men whom I have brought into hands escapes, every one of those guys, I want them all killed. They've been killing off babies for three generations. Whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life or the life of the other. Now it happened. As soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, the Jehu said to the guard, go in and kill him. And he slaughtered all of the Baal worshippers dressed in their Baal uniforms. Let no one come out. 
And they killed them with the edge of the sword. They lived by the sword. They died by the sword. So the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars of the temple of Baal and burned them all. And they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuge dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. And it's the end of the movie. Yes! Finally, a death worthy of the evil that was committed all those years, all those families who lost all those kids who've been crying out for God's justice, and finally he's gone to the source of destroying it. So what's our application from Baal's prophets? I will reap what I've sown in due time. God gave them a lot of rope and a lot of time, a lot more than I would have, before he finally stopped the insanity. In all four of these tombstones, we see a death worthy of the evil that they committed. But you know the ultimate death worthy of the evil committed is that on Calvary? You see Jesus brutalized and tortured. It says in Isaiah that when he hangs on the cross, he is so brutalized that he doesn't even look human anymore. It's not just they pulled out a few hairs. He's literally been distorted from the ripping of his flesh from that scourging post. And the reason his death was so severe and so horrific is because it was a death worthy of the evil you and I have committed. He was taking on the sins of Jezebel and the prophets and you and me. Every unkind word, every impatient moment, every selfish act, and Jesus bore it all with the ultimate death worthy of the evil the world had committed. And his petition to you is to come and find his death for you rather than experience your death for you. And even after all this, Jehu won't turn to God. The instrument of God doesn't turn to God. Because he doesn't know how to heed his however. We all have a however. We'll obey God, but however, not if that happens. However, I really like this sin. However, I really like that temptation. Are we willing to heed our however while we have time? What do I mean, heed our however? Remember, remember Harry Carey? He had these gigantic glasses. It was in Chicago for college. And he'd always come out and his glasses were so big, they super magnified things. And I think for most of us, we super magnify other people's problems. Look at what they did. Look what he did. Look how critical they are. Look out, look, 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 look. And then we talk about our own problems, our own sins, and we pull out like the, the Mr. Peanuts monocle. Yes, I think I might have done maybe something a little there. I mean, maybe it was a mistake. It's pretty much a misunderstanding. And then we look at our spouse. Oh, my goodness, look at how selfish they're being. Oh, but me, I'm doing quite well, thank you. We don't know how to heed our own forevers, and neither did Jehu. Here's how the passage ends. However, huh, despite doing some things God told him to do, however, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. He kept sacrificing to graven images himself. The same guy who had made Israel sin with the golden calves. He calls them Yahweh, but he's bowing down to golden calves that were Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, listen, look at this grace. Because you have done well in doing a few things right in my sight, you've done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne to four generations. A guy who's currently 
not turning away from certain sins, but did obey God in some sense, God has committed in grace and mercy that his sons will sit on the throne for four generations. You think, well, that would certainly turn Jehu's heart around. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Wow. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord. God just graciously gave him a promise for four generations, and he won't even walk in the law of the Lord, God of Israel, with his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. In those days, God said, all right, guess what? You're getting close to a death worthy of the evil you've committed. He begins to chop off pieces of Israel, slowly allowing his judgment to come against Jehu. And the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did, all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King? So Jehu rested with his fathers. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel was 28 years. Continuing the story of 2 Kings, no matter who they are or what they do, People don't know how to heed their own however, even in light of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the courage to heed our however, whether it's revenge, whether it's not seeing how what we say and what we do to others is hurting them, whether it's compromises and not seeing the grace you've extended to us to repent, whether it's focusing on the outside versus the inside, Father, forgive us, Father. Give us clean hands and a clean heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here for a very uh, exciting, animated, graphic book of the Bible. It gets a lot cleaner after this until Rabbit Grandma shows up. Don't forget, we have a Good Friday service online coming up for Good Friday. Make sure you get Easter tickets for our Easter services. We can't, uh, can't wait to see you guys there. Thanks for coming today.